Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello and welcome back to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence, and of course, joining me as always is my co-host Hilary Gates. Hilary, hi. Hi, Rob. How are you today? Well, you know, it's a great day in the world of uh, EMS safety, and we're going to get onto that. But uh, I want to start off with a little tale from yesteryear. And uh, back in Richmond, of course, every lunchtime we'd have to make the hardest decision in EMS. And what was that? Where are we going to go and eat? Okay, it is the toughest decision. We should acknowledge that. And we'd pull out of the station, and at the same time, an ambulance responding on red lights and sirens pulled out next to us. We let it go through. Then we'd come to the first interchange intersection red light, and, of course, that vehicle would stop to clear the intersection. We'd catch up. The light would change. They'd move on on red lights and sirens. We would then follow at normal road speed to the next intersection. They would stop to clear the junction. We would catch up. And this went on for a number of, because Richmond is a gridded system, of course, there's traffic lights everywhere. And of course, we arrive at the cafe that we're going to have lunch at, which is also the location of the emergency, would you believe? And we both arrive at the same time. And so the question is, why? And red lights and sirens, of course, is the topic of today's discussions. We've had some academic research. We've had some position statements. But Hilary, why don't you go and bring in the guests today? I'm really excited to have with us today two stalwarts of research, of quality, and of safety in Brooke Burton and Brian Wilson. Brooke, can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Thanks for having me. My name is Brooke Burton. I'm the Quality Improvement and Controlled Substance Manager for Unified Fire Authority in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm also the Vice President of the National EMS Quality Alliance and the President-elect of the National EMS Management Association. All the acronyms for Brooke. And Brian, would you please introduce yourself? Absolutely. Hello, everyone. My name is Brian Wilson. I'm an emergency EMS physician at St. Luke's University Health Network in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where I also serve as our EMS fellowship director for our hope to soon to be accredited fellowship and also serve as our region's vice president for our EMS council and chair of the performance improvement committee. Among other things, you're also the medical director for the Bethlehem EMS agency, correct? Correct. I'm the medical director for the city of Bethlehem EMS and also work with Brooke uh, on NEMSP's quality and safety course. Uh, And her and I are both actually working together on the national EMS quality improvement initiative on lights and sirens, which we'll touch on soon. Perfect. And that's the reason we're here today, everyone. You may have seen that on Valentine's Day, showing all the love, all of the acronyms got together and they authored a and published, I should say, a statement um, on red lights and sirens use in EMS. And the various organizations include, I'm not going to mention all of them, the American Ambulance Association, ASEP, the Center for Patient Safety, the dispatchers, the chiefs, the fire chiefs, the physicians, NASEMSO, NEMSMA, I could go on. And really the statement that was made here is what is probably going to help change our practice to make it safer for everyone and to focus on patient outcomes. And that's what we're here to discuss today. Rob, why don't you kick it off? Yeah, well, if we just drill into that uh, alphabet soup of associations. And first of all, let's give a nod to all of those associations, because in the last couple of years, there has been amazing collaboration in a number of areas, whether it's red lights and sirens, whether it's legislating together. Of course, the, the big national associations have been acting as one, hunting as a pack. And this is something that must continue as we go forward. So, you know, kudos for them for doing that. 
The joint statement on lights and sirens for vehicle operations on EMS responses, as you said, was published on the 14th of February. They came up with some amazing data, and we'll discuss the data in a minute, but uh, certainly from 2009 stats, uh, 1,579 ambulance crashes on lights and sirens occurred. From 96 to 2012, 137 fatalities in in fire responses, 64 fatalities in ambulance responses. It is, and I think we all know this, public safety is uh, 2.5 to 4.8 times more higher or more dangerous, shall we say, on the roads than than the national average. Of course, add to that, then, of course, we have those move over issues that not only are we, you know, accidents are happening with our vehicles, but also our responders are being struck on the roadside. And of course, that's a whole nother area of issue we need to address. And then that thing that's known as wake effect collisions. And actually, we were traveling on the infamous Californian 405 yesterday, and there was an accident on the other carriageway. And guess what happened on our carriageway? There was a wake effect collision because people were looking left, not looking forward. And you had another another series of accidents. And so being on the highway is a dangerous place. And we acknowledge that. And obviously, part of that is driving on red lights and sirens. And of course, EMS, we have to accept the fact, folks, if you're not the driver, who is? Someone's got to operate the vehicle, right? And we have to operate it safely. And of course, that's another robism and another soapbox, and we'll save that for another day, right? Who's the driver? So we have this statement out there. It's going to draw attention to the fact that only 6.9% of truly life-saving interventions occurred after driving red lights and sirens. In other words, we're spending a lot of time putting ourselves putting the pedestrians and putting others at danger from responding fast when perhaps we don't need to. And so that's really sort of lighting the blue touch paper here for the discussion. But actually, guys, obviously, Brooke, you're a signatory to that. And why now? Why are we? And it's an obvious question, but uh, why now? And a great choice of date, by the way. And by the way, I just want to make sure, Brooke, he said signatory, but he meant the person who signs the paper. So that's just the way he talks sometimes. Is it is now a regular feature <laughs> of the EMS Educator podcast where Hillary and I will bounce off each other in terms of uh, my pronunciation of words. My response, as always, Hillary, is aluminium. Brooke, back to you. I think why now is a great question. And it isn't just now. You know, if we look back, these conversations have been going on since the 80s. Back in the 1980s, you know, medical priority dispatch systems was created with Salt Lake City Fire. And they did a great example of how you can reduce red lights and sirens and vehicle accidents in 1983. You know, so this isn't a new conversation. And and I think that these conversations keep happening over and over. In 2017, NHTSA released a paper, that great paper by Dr. Douglas Kupas and and that also spoke to how this practice needs to change. And I think that we were hoping to see those changes happen, um, you know, without this big collective, but we haven't seen as much progress as we've hoped. So it's great now that all these groups are coming together saying, no, it's time. This has been 30, 40 years in the making, and it's time to, to make it a reality. And why is that? Why hasn't the change happened more quickly? I, I think we can always chalk it up to that's the way we've always done it in tradition. But Brian, can you talk about um, what's happened in your agency and how you've gotten that change to occur and why it took so long? Not not necessarily your agency, but why does it take so long for us to make these changes? You know, that's a great question. And I think if we had a definitive answer as to the why, we could fix it tomorrow. So if anyone out there has the answer to the why, please let us all know because we would love to know it. First and foremost, 
there's an element of that cool factor, right? So you go in Lights and Sirens, like that's kind of fun. And in cognitive psychology, there's this idea of loss aversion, right? So when you have something and then I take it away, people are automatically resistant to that, right? We all know that leading change is difficult, but when you're telling somebody no and taking something away, generally people are just resistant to that. Like I said, cognitive psychology, this idea of loss aversion. I think what we're trying to do right now is really change the discussion and not saying no, right? Because this paper, this statement that, that you know, w- was led by Dr. Kupis and Matt Zavadsky down from uh, MedStar, uh, we're, we're not saying don't do that. We're saying consider whether or not using this intervention is actually going to benefit your patients. And I think that's the whole point of this conversation is we need to selectively utilize this intervention just like we selectively utilize invasive airway management in certain patients, just like we selectively utilize benzodiazepines in certain patients, just like we selectively utilize ketamine in certain situations, right? And that's the whole idea of we're trying to get people to, to change their mindset of lights and sirens is a medical intervention that needs to be judiciously applied for the safety of everyone involved. And I think that's what the statement's trying to get to. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And that's not the case. The city of Bethlehem, where I have the privilege of serving as the medical director, has a phenomenal group of men and women that are out on the front lines that have kind of embodied that change from the beginning. Uh, I came into a system that had a little bit of an understanding of, well, we don't need license sirens for everything. When I started, we were doing a little under 10% of our transports with lights and sirens and right around 40 to 45% of our responses with lights and sirens. We engaged in the conversation actually as part of NEMSP's quality and safety course when I was a participant in that in 2020. We engaged in a conversation as a, as a group and said, well, can we, can we use this less? Can we not use lights and sirens as much to make sure that the community stays safe, that you stay safe? that we get our patients safely to the hospital and that you go home at the end of the day. And we were able to do that. Uh, It's been an ongoing discussion. We talked about data. We've talked about kind of that individual coaching of was this necessary, just like uh, as medical directors we do for um, a lot of the, the change and the conversations we have with our paramedics. You know, but in December of 2021, we got down to 1.38% of transports with lights and sirens, as well as 19.84% of responses with lights and sirens. And I'm just super proud of them for engaging in this conversation and be willing to prove it to themselves that patients aren't dying left and right by not using lights and sirens. And that I've been able to show them the real world data in our system of of the changes in times. And it's minuscule. And so talk to the medics out there, the medics and the EMTs, Brian, how did they respond in your agency? Because you took something away from them that was cool and sexy and fun, and now they don't get to do it as much anymore. I'm being a little facetious, but how did they respond and how did you get that buy-in? It's been hard work, frankly, a lot of time spent with myself and the supervisors of the agency doing that. But we've taken this idea of like the paramedic practitioner, right? That you are a member of the healthcare team. You are there to treat your patient Pennsylvania just recently published or rather um, instituted a new statewide protocol because we work in statewide protocols in PA on a crashing patient protocol that really emphasized treating the patient on the X, not moving an unstable patient to anywhere, but we're mobile for a reason to treat them where they're at. And I think my biggest push has been empowering the paramedics to think not like a technician, but as a clinician. Think about your patient, utilize the tools that you have, and figure out 
what this patient needs from you and treat them right there and right then. Treat them with compassion. Treat them like you would want your family to be treated uh, and make sure that it's a safe system that we're doing that in. So we've implemented uh, multiple different uh, kind of like safety cards that people have is either for a checklist, for airway, or for medication references. And we've changed up a couple of ways that we you know, do things to ensure the, the patient's safety and have kind of just turned it back to them. Well, just like, yes, we're not gonna use lights and sirens, but you're now empowered and being encouraged to go above and beyond and think deeper about the pathophysiology of your patient and provide that treatment to them. And I think they've really just enjoyed that challenge, that aspect, right? We rolled out video laryngoscopes and now I try to do it quarterly, but it's sometimes difficult. We literally go through all of the videos of our intubations as a team and provide constructive feedback to everyone as a whole, kind of a, a takeoff of, a, of medicines like M&M type conference where we'll talk about, was this good? You know, was this an opportunity for improvement? And let them come together as colleagues and talk about it. And they know that it's a safe place. If you're like, yeah, no, this was my intubation. I struggled with this. This is what I wanted to do. And then, you know, Rob can speak up in the back and be like, I had that same thing. I tried doing this and it got better, you know, and it's just really kind of created a culture of just that I'm just a, happy to be a part of. I've got to tell you that, and I'm sure we'll all agree listening to this, that that is an exemplar um, system where you are using evidence to gain Safe outcomes. Let me just take us back into the annals of time for a second and go back to the, the seminal paper from Eisenberg et al. that said that uh, if BLS arrives in four minutes and ALS arrives in eight minutes, then I think it's like 42% or sorry, 40 to 60% of cardiac arrest patients will survive. And that then set for the world, because I had the same thing in the UK, right? That then set the eight minute or 859 minute response time. And of course, we then go on to Ornato et al. and Pepe et al. that said, you know, for every minute of delay, survivability decreases by 10%. So we have what we used to call the cardiac survival rule. That's what set up Amlet's response on red lights and sirens. However, that's for life-critical cardiac arrest issues. But of course, we set the system up. And we then went on to say, well, if that's the worst-case scenario, and we use that as our creative or our, our point of origin, then everything else will follow. And of course, what we then did is turn red lights and sirens on for everything. And we then told our elected officials and those that fund us and those that are going to you know, provide us the contractual right to deliver EMS services, that that's what we're going to do. And so we then have what I now call, we're living by the rookie Bobby rule, right? Okay, so if you drive fast enough, everything else is great, okay? This is not shaking and baking at all, folks. So Brooke, with your sort of National Association hat on, how are you going to go back and convince our elected officials that it's okay to slow down a bit? Well, I think that's a big challenge because a lot of the contracts for our EMS systems are based around response times. A lot of the performance measures that we put out to our cities and council people are all around performance response times. So I think we need to change the conversation around clinical care being just as important as response times in a lot of those contracts. And what you're seeing now is you know, some RFPs that are coming out for ambulance services where they actually have an offset for response time based on clinical care. So that is coming about in some areas and we're starting to see a shift in, in how people are looking at those contracts and how services are set up to put the you know, most importance on clinical outcomes versus response outcomes. 
And let me also commend what Brian said about empowering his clinicians, because while he took something away from them, he maybe did kind of a, a little magic trick by telling them that the reason he was taking it away is because they were smart enough to deal with the results of that. And to say to them, you can be part of a clinical decision-making team instead of being a person who follows an algorithm. You can make the red lights and sirens part of the treatment that you decide upon the same way you would give medication or electricity or whatever. Um, and leveraging that um, that motivation in the EMS provider is something that can make all of us better providers. Knowing that our medical director or the people who are in charge of our agency and our communities think of us as intelligent decision makers who can make clinical decisions in a high stakes environment means that we want that job. We want to do that job and we want to have that responsibility. Let me take it where Brooke was just going to go though, because I think also public education is absolutely key. Right now in TV, land, we're in the middle of sweeps, right? And sweeps is where TV companies get their ratings from. And so they save all these good stories, these salacious stories, these impactful headlines in order to attract your viewing and their rating. And I just saw, a, saw one, one here on, on my side of the country where it was, you know, clearly a low acuity patient was, you know, complaining that the, pa the ambulance didn't arrive fast enough because they were, you know, they got there outside of the response time. And I'm thinking, well, actually, you could have, you would have survived because you're talking to us on the television. You did survive, and it was low acuity. The point being is, we have we have a massive PR problem here as well because of what you said, Brooke. The expectation is that we will arrive and then we'll walk slow motion into the building and treat you and all those other things because that's a political issue we have to tackle in addition to the clinical issue. And if you're listening in the corner office right now. That's your problem, and you've got to help us solve that so that we can do the right thing for safety and also arrive in an appropriate time for the appropriate condition based on the appropriate triage. And so I just wanted to jump in there, and hopefully I just finished your thought for you, Brooke, because I think that's an important bit to go to. Hillary, you were about to jump back in there. Well, I mean, we keep talking about these numbers and the number that Rob mentioned at the beginning that's cited in the paper that in one research study, about 6.7% of calls were going red lights and sirens to the hospital. And then we were able to prove that that extra time that we saved made a difference in that patient outcome. And I just think people are going to ask this question, Brian, if you can try to address it, what are those, those instances? Tell us about the clinical scenarios where we may need to consider going red lights and sirens to the hospital. I think Brooke touched on this a little bit before, especially when she referenced MPDS and, and the Utah study initially. It starts with our call takers, right? They A lot of times we think of it, it's an us and them. Well, they're up there, they're up there. It's the same thing. They're the hospital, we're the EMS. But, but they're part of the same chain of survival, right? And I think that's one good thing that the American Heart Association has kind of put forward when you talk about all those links, that the call taking is a vital link to that. And I, I think we see it specifically right here. We need to know the current status of the patient so that we know whether or not we need to get there. Because every single one of us will agree that there are interventions that are time sensitive that we need to get on scene to do, right? Whether it's providing a defibrillator because there's no public access defibrillator that's available, whether it's CPR because there's no one around who can, can do the CPR whether it's getting uh, Narcan or an EpiPen to that patient. Um, those are just a few of the examples. In the paper that we've referenced uh, by Jeff Jarvis, Mike Tagman, Lawrence Brown, and Vaughn Hamilton, published, what, 2021 in pre-hospital emergency care, they kind of go through what they thought these 
potentially life-saving interventions would be. And their liberal definition was to, quote, reverse a critical condition or rapidly improve hemodynamic stability. So what that's saying is, yes, we totally agree that there are times that we need to expedite our arrival to the scene, but it's limited, right? And I think it was 6.9% to 7% of the time. And when you think about it, even in my agency that's been decreasing that, we're still double that amount using weights and sirens and responding. You know, obviously this paper uses a single data set, right, which doesn't inject a slight bit of bias there. And we would love to have a larger data set to be able to pull from to get a better understanding of, of what's going on. But that's been a challenge with the way that this data is encoded. Um, you know, but just the things I just want to mention real quick as far as that goes is Brooke had mentioned, you know, using quality metrics. And we're finally at a point where we have quality metrics for EMS, right? And thank you to Nemsqua, Brooke, you've been part of that for a while, Michael Redliner. Jeff Jarvis, you know, th- those uh, members up there with that organization finally can give us some quality that we can look at to kind of go back to our elected officials to, to use. And I'm just going to sum it up by lights and sirens may not improve all that much response time as well, because you need to look at your motor vehicle code. In some states, the use of lights and sirens does not grant you the privilege of superseding the speed limit. And you have to come to a complete stop at every stop sign or every traffic light before you proceed through it. So it does allow for some ability for you to move faster through some high traffic areas, but it's not a license to kill or a license to speed, if you will, right? You're not a, you're not 007 when you get the, the use the lights and sirens. And so I just want to remind everyone to figure out what what you're legally allowed to do by employing this intervention in your jurisdiction. So we always tell our guests that once we start talking, time flies, and it has. So let's just take a second to go to our sponsor, EMS Gives Life. Hello, I'm Christine Fichter, the Executive Director of EMS Gives Life. At EMS Gives Life, our mission is simple. We educate the EMS first responder community on how to become a living organ or bone marrow donor, and then provide support if you choose to give this gift of life. Our organization was inspired by pro-EMS paramedic Will Lindbergh's selfless decision to anonymously donate a portion of his liver, saving the life of a three-year-old boy. We know our community is full of heroes who perform life-saving acts every day. It is this heroism and selflessness that we're counting on. More than 6,000 people die each year on the transplant waiting list. Deceased donors are simply not enough. Living organ donors are desperately needed, and our community is up for the challenge. Would you consider being a living donor if you had the support you needed and the assurance that you would go to the top of the list if you ever needed a transplant in the future? Through our partnerships, we can make those promises. If you're curious about living organ or bone marrow donation, let's talk. And if you're already a living donor, we'd love to hear your story. You can find us at emsgiveslife.org. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. As always, uh, if you haven't uh, visited EMS Gives Life, do that because it is a truly a noble cause. So you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Stitcher or Spotify and any other platform that's out there. Talking of any other platform, also, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening on. It's very important. It shoves us up the ratings and we're there with the best of them. So, Hillary. Brooke, you had something based on Brian's last statement. Yeah, I was just going to say, Brian, I, I remember driving lights and sirens. I would usually take longer to get to somewhere because it was such a dangerous <laughs> kind of thing. And it made me more nervous as an EMS provider. So so a lot of times I, I would go slower than I probably normally would have, you know, in, in certain circumstances. So it's, it's kind of interesting. And we have to think, too, about the anxiety that that practice creates on our providers and also on our patients. 
you know, think of if you're having a STEMI and you're in the back of the ambulance and you have problems with your myocardium and now we're, you know, cranking up your anxiety level. I mean, what effect is that going to have on our patients as well? So it's not just the, the crash. It can be a lot of, you know, psychological and emotional factors going on as well that can affect physiology of our providers and our patients. Brooke, I love the image of you with your hands kind of clenched on the steering wheel and saying, I don't want to crash, I don't want to crash. I, I have a similar story when I was a very new paramedic working for the fire department, watching uh, a neighboring agency go to the hospital, which was nearby my firehouse, go to the hospital lights and sirens every time. And I just kept thinking to myself, wow, they must have really sick patients. Well, it turns out that that wasn't the case at all. And they had a kind of a directive from their leadership that when they were not in their own first due, that they needed to use the lights and sirens to get back in service more quickly, which of course you look at that and it's uh, a pretty ridiculous directive. And and I felt like an idiot one time when I pulled over for them because they were behind me with lights and sirens. And once we arrived at the hospital, I was very eager to see what sick patient they had. And it was a kid with a cut finger who walked into the ER, right? And I just said to myself, okay, something's not right here. Well, that's actually another, another angle, isn't it? That for those that are driving on red lights and sirens, we need to do another piece to educate the public on what to do when a vehicle does approach you on red lights and sirens, because inevitably they will pull over in the narrowest part of the road. And uh, of course, you've all been there and done that. Also, in the last two months, how many folk, how many ambulances have gone to hospital in eight minutes, speediest time possible, in order to wait three hours to hand the patient over? So again, you know, there's that kind of perversity that's going on that we're going to get there because policy tells us we have to do it. And then the wall, and literally we're driving into the wall, pun intended, right? And uh, we're going to sit there and wait to hand the patient over. So therein, therein lies another issue that we need to sort out. And in, and if you think about what you just said, Rob, that even you know drivers on the road don't really know what to do and how unsafe that is in these wake effect crashes. Well, it would be kind of awesome that in 10 or 15 years, that's such an, a unique scenario that it rarely happens. Not to say that we shouldn't educate drivers on what to do with, a, with an ambulance or a fire truck, but it, it doesn't need to be such a big deal anymore because we've read the science and we know what what makes a difference. And Brian, I want to go back to what you said earlier about when we talked a little bit about what types of changes we need to make and be treating on scene and treat them on the X. I like that statement that you made. You know, one of the things that we are seeing a sea change in, and thank God we are seeing this, is cardiac arrest patients who we used to scoop up and run and take them to the hospital where nothing was done for them that we couldn't have done in the field. And now most agencies are moving to not transporting these patients, again, because of the science that if you do not get ROSC in the field, you're probably not going to get it in the hospital. And so that seems to be uh, a scenario we can rely on and say, look at what we've done to change these outcomes and to increase the safety and to understand the futility of bringing someone to the hospital when we know we can do all those things in the field. And maybe that's something we can piggyback on to encourage folks to continue to make these clinical decisions in the field. What do you think? Absolutely. Specifically, when you think about cardiac arrest patients and the use of lights and sirens, I don't think any of us are going to argue that the use of lights and sirens to get to the scene for cardiac arrest patient is vitally important, especially for the, the first due responders that are there, especially if it's ALS capable crew. You know, if you have an ALS fire truck that's responding from a station two minutes away and the ALS ambulance that's 10 minutes away, I'm not so sure that that ALS ambulance actually needs lights and sirens at that point if the, all the resources are there. But you know, I think that's the whole idea. If you need to look at your system, figure out your system design, 
Because as we all know, you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. And the whole idea is we just need to identify those opportunities. Um, but I want to give a shout out to another one of our uh, NAMSP colleagues, uh, Rob Rosenbaum, who just presented at NAMSP this past year on the work that he's done in Delaware now as their state EMS medical director on this Save a Life, which was an acronym that they used uh, to focus on cardiac arrest outcomes of patients as well. Yeah, you can do everything there. You know, I think pretty standard in most parts of the country is now field termination of resuscitation uh, with very selective transport. But in some areas, we're still transporting everyone. And I would make the argument that if you're transporting them to the hospital and they're in persistent asystole because you don't pronounce it seen, you're doing everything that that person needs. And that if you even need to transport them, we shouldn't be using lights and sirens in those cases. I would still advocate we per, you know do a field termination, but if, if that's just not available, ACLS is ACLS and we're doing it. And there's almost nothing that I'm doing as an ER physician in the hospital that you can't do. Obviously, you know, massive MI, witness cardiac arrest, you know, ECMO, lytics, cath, or, or can be selectively applied in certain um, certain patient populations. But I think that goes back to what, a, what we've been saying from the beginning, that this, we're talking about selective application of the use of lights and sirens. And that would be one of those times where we'd be like, okay, that might not be unreasonable. I'm just going to jump in there because it's going to come back to our own rhetoric here, because in terms of having fast response times, arriving there rapidly, using red lights and sirens to arrive, we are almost, and I'm making little rabbit ears here, guaranteeing your survival where we know the truth, that it's not a given. Um, and perhaps there's another public education piece there as well. I'm sorry to say that, but it had to be said. Uh, I think you're absolutely correct, 100%. And, you know, we, we can't exist in a vacuum um, and need to focus on, on that for sure. Brooke, in your long career in EMS, what have you seen in terms of how to show the public what these changes look like and how to lead them through what will probably look like something different than they're used to? How do you talk to the public? What are the campaigns? Rob, what did you do in, in Richmond? Well, first of all, I'm going to go back to one of my soapbox items, and it all comes down to those three or four little words, all those in favor, all in favor, because if you can't change the mindset of your elected officials who govern your practice. And whilst you have an EMS chief, chances are, or a fire chief, they work at the pleasure of the mayor. The mayor works at the pleasure of the council. And therefore, you have to, and I'm sorry to say this, it's a political process to change some of these things. So you have to be really good and really integrated and actually have the confidence of those that are elected officials in order to even go in there to start the conversation of listen. We've been doing this just because, and now we're applying science to it, and here's what's going to go on. Because, again, your elected officials are getting complaints from their constituents because in the perception of time, and we all know that in an emergency, time drags, right? And what is normally the four-minute response in somebody's head is, you were forever, and therefore I'm going to call council person X to complain. And so the quality assessment of your value is judged by again i'm sorry it's the ricky bobby rule you know you were late when people are talking about us to complain about us and and it could also be you know competing services we arrived on scene 50 percent of the time or 60 percent of the time so how useless are they and so we have to start with educating the politicians because they set the policies the procedures and ultimately manage and govern the contractual obligations that a lot of services have with that. And and I'm not just talking about whether you're a private EMS system working under contract, 
But also, if you're the fire chief, you're going to catch a lot of flack for not doing what your lords and masters have asked you to do. So my first point, and I'll, and I'll go to Brooke, my first point is a political one. Brooke? Yeah, I, I totally agree. that That's where we have to start. I think the second point is the public, because we've created this big public expectation based on TVs and movies and things we've done in the past that you know, we're going to immediately be there, lights and sirens blazing, all these things are going to happen. And we've made this public expectation. So we really need to also do a good education public service campaign around this with our communities. And we have to explain the reason for the change. And there's a couple of of services that have done this fairly well. So uh, one thing that we haven't talked about yet is our National Performance Improvement Project. And there's a big group of people who are working on this collaboratively. And there's a couple of organizations who have done this very well in their communities that are giving us kind of their pearls of wisdom and their lessons learned. And part of that is how you educate the public and and ideas that you can do for that. As we look to improve together, those lessons are going to be released to everyone to be able to employ those at their agencies. So that's one thing that's really exciting about this project that we're working on as a group is that we can take what other people learn what they've tried and apply it to our own agencies and communities. Don't reinvent the wheel. Rip off and duplicate, as we like to say, R&D. Brooke, what else can we tell our educators and our leaders in within an EMS system when we talk to them about how to teach this concept? And obviously, one of our guests in the past uh, said this so well, there are times when having a brand new EMT or paramedic who you're teaching initial certification to is an easier nut to crack than someone who's been around a while and you have to unteach things. So talk about what an educator can do with an initial certification and and with continuing ed with their group of medics and EMTs to really drive this point home and make the safety the priority. Yeah, I think embracing an evidence-based culture is a big thing and telling people that we don't just always do things the way that they have been done. We look at the evidence. We teach people from their very first EMT course that this is an evolving profession. You know, we haven't been around that long. We haven't had a lot of research done for our profession and it's evolving. So we really need to look at current research. We need to be evidence-based. And, you know, if we make our processes and protocols based on that, and we're not afraid to embrace change when we learn more or we discover new things, I think that's a good start. And then we bring the data and the evidence to those groups and say, look, this is what we found. We found that these things don't make a big difference. We found that we can be safer and we show the numbers and statistics in a way that's easily consumable for (laughs) the normal person. You know, that you don't have to be like a, a big data person to get it. So we make it consumable for the normal street EMT or paramedic. And then, you know, that's what we start to use to change hearts and minds. I think this is a good time to kind of mention a little bit about data and research. Brooke and I mentioned this a lot uh, when we teach at the NAMSP class. And anyone who does quality work and research work can explain to you, you know, there's a difference between quality questions and research questions. Um, but they're both, they both need evidence and data to be able to derive answers from. And I think that's one of the things as we go forward and continue to improve uh, the NEMSIS data collection and the NEMSIS data elements, that we need to have a more seamless, uniform way of collecting this information. Some of these elements are collected under response mode, where it says emergency or non-emergency. Some are just 
captured under mode descriptors where it says lights and sirens, no lights and sirens. And I think this overall is, is leading to a mess. And then some EPCR systems allow agencies to kind of, you know, not, you know, exempt out of reporting their data or only report some of their data and not all of their data. And you know, if we want to improve the system as a whole, EMS really needs to come together as a team and be like, we need all of this data to be uniform and correct across all of our PCR platforms in a usable, digestible format of yes or no. And Remley Crow is probably better to talk about this than I am about, about how to really put this together in a way that we can, can use. But we do need new data. We need to do more research on this. And I think once we've done some of the performance improvement work that we're doing now with this collective, um, and I want to call out Mike Tegman and thank him for his leadership on this project because he's you know truly the brains behind getting that that national collective going. But yeah, no, we need to set out and do some more research after that and assess whether or not our outcome measure of increasing the safety of our system has occurred. You just listed off all of those names there. Maybe we should just rename them the Jedi Council, right? Because uh, you've <laughs> got uh, R2, uh, Yoda, and Obi-Wan all in one group there. Seriously. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's work out if we want to talk to you, get hold of you, or contact you. Brooke, how can we do that? You can email me. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> all the normal ways to contact people. But I, you know, I'm happy to take phone calls or emails if you go to the NEMSQA website, there's contact information there to get more information about NEMSQA, um, which is the Quality Alliance that's doing this uh, per National Performance Improvement Project. And also the NEMSMA website, you can get my contact information on there as well. And you can reach me at bburton at unifiedfire.org. Excellent. And you, Brian? So you can find me on Twitter at embrianwilson, and that's Brian with a Y, or my email is brian.wilson at sluhn.org. And I'm happy to answer any questions or share any of the data that I have for the work that we've done. Excellent. And before I ask Hillary how we can find her, if you want to catch Hillary and I collectively, you can just email support at prodigyems.com. Magically, it will find its way to us after that. But uh, Hillary, where can we find you? I'm on Twitter at Gates Hill. I'm on Facebook and you can email me at Hillary at prodigyems.com. That's Hillary with one L. And I'm UK Rob L1. That one is very important. And also uh, you can track me down on LinkedIn. So I think this has been a fantastic Red Lights and Sirens edition of the EMS Educator podcast. There's still a lot to do, and we still have work to complete. As you guys have said, the Jedi Council's there, the papers are there. The evidence is coming together, which is absolutely critical in going forward. You mentioned Remley Crow, of course, favorite four-letter word is data and taco. We have to, we're obliged to say that under contract. The point being is that this is coming together quite nicely, but we mustn't give up now because we've got a long way to go. Those are my final thoughts. Hillary, over to you for the close. I had the distinct privilege recently of hanging out at a resuscitation academy with the Mickey Eisenberg total fangirl moment. And we actually talked about... Wow. Uh-huh. Wow is right. We actually talked about that paper that established times for cardiac arrest response. And this was in the 70s. And it was before there were AEDs and everywhere and, and all kinds of other things. So it's not surprising that we've based the last 40 years of practice on a response time that had nothing to do with many of the responses that were called for. What I was really impressed with was his sticking in the fight and still standing up there and talking about how the science has changed and not being afraid to talk about ways that the science has changed and proven us wrong. And that's what we really need to be able to say is that 
this practice is often more detrimental, more dangerous, and perhaps worse for all parties involved, including the patient, the provider, and the public, and we should stop doing it. And I think that the selective application theory that Brian mentioned and really thinking of this as a clinical intervention and really trying to change the mindset of all of the new providers coming into the system is the way that we're going to make a sea change and make it better for all uh, patients, providers, and the public. Excellent. And uh, of course, uh, we should do exactly what Brian's done in his system is use the data and be bold. So uh, kudos to you, sir. Anyway, she's been Hilary Gates. I've been Rob Lawrence. Thank you to our guests. And until next time, bye for now.